Hi, I'm Steve Clements, and I have a question. With Donald Trump back in the limelight, who should be more scared, Democrats or Republicans? Let's get to the bottom line. How long has it been since you've heard this voice? We won the election twice. And it's possible we'll have to win it a third time. It's possible. Yes, folks, it's the second coming of Trump, or the third, depending on how you count. The former president is back with a vengeance, and from your reaction to that clip, you can tell where you stand on the American political spectrum. Do you long for the time when he filled your days and nights with pox of his grievances, personal pet peeves, culture wars, and anger? Or is it the exact opposite, and you're wondering why we're still talking about him? Well, love him or not, this week, Donald Trump's been holding campaign-like rallies around the country, repeating the big lie that he won the last election, promising revenge against the Republicans that don't agree with him, vilifying immigration and immigrants, and, of course, blasting the media and the Democrats. And throughout it all, he did what he does best, tease the media about whether he'll run for president again in 2024. So is it a smart strategy for Republicans to indulge Trump and tie their future to him? But at the same time, is it safe for anyone to pretend that he doesn't exist? Today, we're talking with one of the Democratic Party's leading political strategists, Celinda Lake, who advised candidate Joe Biden and countless Democratic candidates over the years, and is the president of her own polling firm, Lake Research Partners, and Dan Hopkins, professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania, whose research focuses on American elections and public opinion. It's really great to have you both here. Uh, Celinda, let me start with you, uh, and I'll just ask you the same question. Who, you know, we, we had President uh, Trump back in Ohio, then back Back to the border. He's going to be in Florida. Um, who should worry more, the Republicans or the Democrats, about his, you know, return to rallies? <laughs> well, I think the American public should worry the most uh, because it's a return to chaos and division and strife and personal politics that uh, a lot of voters, and remember, we won by 7 million votes, um, rejected in this last election. But I think the Democrats uh, should be worried if they ignored him, and we don't. We don't take him for granted. But we also have no idea what kind of impact they'll have on the off-year election when he's not actually on the ballot. And the Republicans should be very worried that they're taking a short-term fix that is a long-term addiction. Dan, uh I'd love to get your views on this, but I was very, very taken with an article uh, that you wrote recently in 538. My, my audience, I'll tell you, you can go to 538.com uh, and you can read his piece called How Trump Redefined Conservatism. And in it, you talk, start with the story of Senator Pat Toomey. For my audience, Senator Pat Toomey may not be a household name, but he's important. He's a senator from Pennsylvania, and he used to be the face of then-new conservatism, anti-tax, you know, really a hardcore conservative. Well, I had a friend who had lunch with Pat Toomey today in Pennsylvania, and they were talking about the Times. This friend was a leading brand-name Democrat who lamented the loss for the country of Pat Toomey. So I guess if Pat Toomey has been moved to the fringe. What has happened to the Republican Party? I really appreciate your pointing out that study. And yeah, Senator Pat Toomey is my home state senator here in Pennsylvania. In 2004, Pat Toomey primaried and almost beat um, longtime incumbent Republican Arlen Specter. And you're right, for years was the face of Republican anti-tax kind of fiscal conservatism. But with a study in a study that I did with my colleague Hans Noel, uh, we found that very quickly after Trump emerged on the political scene, 
political activists, right and left, started to define who was most conservative, not in terms of traditional tax spend politics, but instead in terms of politicians' relationship to Donald Trump. So in our April 20, 2021 survey, what we found is that the politicians who activists rated as most conservative were consistently either President, former President Trump himself or those in President Trump's orbit, Mike Pence, Josh Hawley. And I think that is a testament to the fact that Donald Trump, through running and, and serving as president for four years, did manage to redefine who, who is conservative and who is not, like um, my home state senator, Pat Toomey. Right now, we seem to have these civil wars going on in both parties. So the real question I have for you as one of the preeminent pollsters and political advisors in this country is, what do Americans want? And are the parties as we see them today realigning, reorganizing themselves in ways that are going to be very surprising for us? Well, I think that uh, one of the things is uh, that everyone has remarked on is just how polarized everything is. And people are really struck. I mean, we can take extremely positive policies like the Infrastructure Bill or the Families Act, and you just put it in front of it, Joe Biden's plan, the Infrastructure Bill, and we get Republicans switching from being for the thing by 60 percent to being against the thing by 67 percent. So. It's really striking how partisanly polarized things are. I will say this. The Democrats are not very divided. And when you look at the polling data, 86, 95 percent of Democrats are behind, are, are united, actually. Hmm. Um, even when um, there's somebody that we might disagree with uh, on in one end of the party or the other, Democrats are united with getting this plan forward, moving the country forward. And they're really remarkably united behind the agenda. I think one of the biggest questions out there is whatever happens in 2022 and 2024, wait till young people start to take over the electorate. And in 2024, they will be the biggest share of the electorate. Gen Zers are bigger than millennials. People don't realize this, but the Gen Z cohort that is coming down the pike and doesn't all vote right now, isn't all eligible, is going to be bigger even than the millennials. Combined, they're solidly Democratic. And everything that the Republicans are doing right now to shore up Trump, to reinforce their party, to save themselves in the short term, makes it harder for them to win this vote and the youth vote in the long term. The culture wars, the cancer culture, uh, the racism, the intolerance, the transgender politics, the women's rights, all of that is making it much, much harder to hold on to these young voters. So, Linda, um, before we uh, go broader, can you tell our audience what the age range is for Gen Zers and millennials? And are they all Democrats? Are they split? You know, do you have divides within uh, these Gen Z and millennial um, voters that are coming online? That's uh, a really good question. And there's some disagreement. So I'd love my colleague Dan here to, to jump in as well. But uh, the young voters are generally considered either under 39 or under 34. And the, and the Gen Zers are considered to be under 24, under 22. So mm. there's some disagreement because it's a cohort, but that gives you an idea of who they are. There are divisions, obviously big divisions by education, uh, by um, race, some of the same things that promote divisions among older voters. But whatever cohort you're looking at, the younger voters of that cohort, whether it's college-educated or rural or 
small business owners or whatever you look like, the younger people in that cohort are significantly more democratic than the older people in that cohort. And that includes on issues, too, like young evangelicals, very supportive of climate change politics. Um, so, again, whatever cohort you're looking at, whatever demographic group, when you look at the young ones, they're significantly more democratic. Overall, the cohort is about 60 percent plus democratic right now. Wow. Dan, how and do you... Dan, how do you look at those divides? Uh, Dan, how do you look at those divides? And and you know when you when you sort of look at what this next generation coming on was, you know, to, to, for whatever it's worth, and you know, it's a, basically a you know small slice of life. When I look at Donald Trump at these rallies, I do see a lot of young people, but I don't know how what, how large or small a percentage of that is of all young people. But your thoughts? So these are great questions. And I think one of the things to know about younger generations is that they are the most ethnically and racially diverse generations, as Celinda said. And so even if um, young generations simply um, voted in the ways that their older um, um, compatriots did within their ethnic and racial group, you would still see because um, the younger generations are more Hispanic, more African-American, you would still see them leaning Democratic. It's also interestingly the case that generations often carry the experiences of their um, kind of late adolescence and early adulthood through for generations. So that you can still see today in registration statistics and in partisan identification the echoes of Roosevelt, of Eisenhower, of Kennedy. Mm. And I think that one of, you know, as Celinda was saying, you know, this doesn't mean that the Democrats are destined to win elections or Republicans are destined to lose them, but it does mean that there is now a generation entering the electorate who leans Democratic and that I would expect for certainly um, 2022 and 2024 that those voters who, you know, under 30 who are just coming into the electorate are going to lean Democratic and going to help the Democrats offset losses they may have with older voters. Well, you know, part of the reason I really wanted to do this show with both of you is that Donald Trump is back. He's, you know, maybe, you know, I think he made less headlines with his return than maybe a lot of other people, you know, hoped for. But nonetheless, he's back and he's sending signals that he might uh, run in 2024. And as Celinda just said, at least uh, he's trying to influence the race in 2022. And, and Celinda, you're, you're the smartest Democratic pollster I know. As you kind of look at 2022, you know, you've got a 50 to 50 uh, balance of senators in the United States Senate. And I think what you've got five. I, I don't know the number, but I think it's about five seats or something uh, in the House. Do Democrats understand that while they hear your numbers and the demographic change, they're really in a fragile situation? They totally understand it. And I think Democrats are very, very concerned about the two-year itch where voters just decide, well, let me balance the president even if I like him. We're very, very worried about structural changes like gerrymandering and the voter suppression. And, of course, there have been more laws and, and damaging laws passed than ever before, which shows the Republicans are worried, too. We're worried about winning down-ballot races like attorneys generals and so secretaries of state, because they can determine a lot what happens with the elections in the state. So I think that there's a lot to be concerned about in 2022. One of the reasons we're talking about modifying the filibuster or passing things through reconciliation is I think the Democrats' salvation will come from delivering results. And some of those results will be with, mm. with Republicans, and some of those results will be without them. 
And then those Republicans are going to have to explain, why did you vote against the subsidy checks? Why did you vote against child care tax credits? Why did you vote against elder care for my mother? And they're going to really have to explain that to women voters. Dan, is there a reckoning coming for those Republicans who voted or didn't vote the way Celinda said? I mean, one of the reasons I liked your piece so much is it had great analysis. But you, all, you didn't run away from the politics of it. And I'm just asking, like in this moment, if, if Attorney General Bill Barr is no longer a good Republican, and he was like one of Trump's biggest, if Vice President Mike Pence is no longer, is now booed and called a traitor, and they have... You know, pictures of a hangman's noose uh, uh, with Mike Pence on it. I guess my question is, on one hand, that seems scary. On the other hand, maybe Democrats, this is a good sideshow. And, the, you know, you, you kind of look at the country and the independents are out there and say, let them eat each other alive. <laughs> wow. Well, there's a lot there. I think one key thing to keep in mind is that, and Celinda alluded to this, very, very reliably, the party that holds the presidency loses seats in midterm elections, right? There have only been um, two exceptions in the last 90 years. So for right? our audience, just let me interrupt. So for our audience, um, midterm elections we're talking about is 2022, next year. So just wanted to punctuate that point. Go ahead. Absolutely. And I think what's critical to know then is, yeah, the Democrats go into this election facing headwinds, having to defend Senate seats in traditionally Republican places like Arizona and Georgia. Um, and at the same time, yeah, clinging to a very, very narrow House majority right now and facing the prospect of redistricting that could alone tip the balance even before we, you know, get the voters get their say. I think it's also really important to distinguish um, the periodic, you know, what happens in elections when millions and millions of voters get to cast their views from the, the, what's going on right now, which is positioning within the parties um, for a much smaller audience of activists and journalists. And I think that when we're thinking about Donald Trump's kind of return to prominence through rallies and whatnot, one of the critical questions is about the maneuvering within the Republican Party, the, these, these fights over who's going to define what the Republican Party stands for. And I think that um, what we should expect is in 2022, the Democrats are, are likely to lose seats, certainly in the House of Representatives and quite possibly in the Senate. And so um, I think that there may well be a reckoning, but the extent to which a reckoning comes, it's going to come more from long term and intra party dynamics than I think it's going to come be delivered from voters who, you know, everything we know about Republican primary and general election voters right now is that. You know, Donald Trump is is their idea of a very, very strong candidate. I appreciate that. Celinda, so uh, as you know, I've spent some time uh, with President Biden when he was vice president. I interviewed him a good number of times. Um, and I, you know, I think if truth be told, he basically thought that in the in the last in the election of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, uh, Donald Trump was going to pull it out because he said to me, you know, in, 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 on the record, the Democratic Party had become a party of snobs. That it looked down on people. That it, it had forgotten how to connect with real people and their suffering and where they were. And so, when you kind of go through many of the rights causes you just laid out and others, and you kind of like, I mean, I know this oversimplifies it, but you take Brooklyn, New York, which used to be street, but now it's become posh, and you try to take yeah. Brooklyn as the frame. That doesn't look like something that has an on ramp for a lot of Americans. Does the Democratic Party? And its structure, even under Joe Biden, still have a snob problem. 
I think it does have a snob problem, and that comes particularly when it's around the economy. Because, mm -hmm. number one, the voters are more interested in the economy than in what Dr. Seuss' book their kids are reading in school. Now, if we engage and debate that, then we become part of the problem, too. What's good news is the Republicans are running on that, and, and Joe Biden and President Biden is not taking the bait. He is focused solely on COVID and the economy and getting this country going again. And we have a game-changing opportunity here. If we can get this economy recovered, and if we can pass the jobs and the family plan, and people see us as better on the economy, then we will change politics in this country for the next 10 years up and down the ballot. Democrats do not win when we are not ahead on the economy. And in 2016, we were behind on the economy. It's one of the reasons we lost. So pulling up on who's going to be good for jobs, who's going to be good for your kitchen table economics, your pocketbook, this is a game-changing opportunity for us. And if there's one person in America who really gets that, it's President Biden and his team. Well, Dan, I'm going to ask you to respond to the same thing, but I want to ask you slightly different. Um, I spent a lot of time with Republicans and Democrats, all different you know, levels and colors and flavors and around the country. But one of the things that becomes very clear to me is that the way that people on different sides of the aisle, as it's defined now, Donald Trump conservatism, what they care about, how they look at the government, you know, how they look at the wars in Afghanistan, you know, whatever it may be, it's very different. You know, it's, I wouldn't even call it partisan. It's just gravity works differently on this side and from the way gravity works on this side. And, you know, I think a lot of people recklessly call this the cult of Donald Trump or the maybe they, you know, talk about the QAnon conspiracy. They talk about evangelicals, which may all be part of that. But my question to you is, is it irrationality on their side, on, on the Republican side, or are there authentic, you know, genuine dimensions to their support for President, former President Trump that are rational and logical that the other side is not understanding? Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And I mean, one of the oldest questions, I could go grab many books uh, from my bookshelves right here on this question of whether we think, you know, is the public rational? I think that um, maybe one way to frame it is that Republicans are interested in a set of cultural, often symbolic issues. They are some of the issues that are foremost, particularly in the minds of some Republican activists, are not actually the subjects of um, public policy, right? So Donald Trump um, made waves when early in his term he attacked um, football players who wouldn't stand for the national anthem. Now, he wasn't considering any executive action, any legislative push related to that. It is simply a symbol of where we are as a country. And I think that one of the challenges is that um, the Republican Party, certainly the, the Trump wing of the Republican Party, which has been ascendant, is very interested in a set of issues. You know, we, we mentioned Dr. Seuss um, somewhat facetiously, um, but is interested in a set of, of cultural issues, um, say critical race theory, that are um, to some extent not the, the objects of public policy. And so um, I think that we, to, we also do ourselves a disservice if we focus on today's hot issue on Twitter. Um, and um, and get away from, and I think Celinda was making this point in a way, um, by, by pointing to the centrality of the economy, right? Voters are not engaged in the day-to-day -day attacks that happen on Twitter or even on, you know, heaven forbid, on, on even the best, um, you know, television shows, right? But voters do engage on the question of what does the economy look like? 
how is you know how's the president and and his or her party doing and i think that um you know those of us who follow politics religiously want to know what ted cruz said this morning or where he flew on vacation but for many many voters politics is not the first thing it's not even the 10th thing on their minds and i think that come you know when we get towards elections they're then going to ask themselves the kinds of questions that that Celinda was teeing up about the conditions of the economy, about how the two parties are doing. But I think that politics is a, you, know, you might think of it as a kind of play where there are a few of us who are watching very closely, but most of the audience is out in the lobby mm. and missing most of the screaming. Um, thank you for that. Celinda, we, uh, you both have said today that that in, you know, classically, historically in elections, that midterm election, that 2022 election is usually a balancer against the president's party. And so we have this coming up, but, but Celinda, you know, you're not helping the Republican side to, you know, to see the future and see in the crystal ball. You're helping the Democrats. Are there things they can do? You've talked in the past about health care, but are there issues or framing or scaffolding that can change that historic pattern, in your view, significantly enough um, so that that Donald Trump surge, which we're seeing right now with him coming back when he affected, is less significant than it might otherwise be? Yes, and I think the administration is doing a lot of that. There are three things we can do. Yeah. Point number one, win the And I think this administration is trying as hard as it can to win the economy. And it's not win the macro economy or win the numbers of the Council of Economic Advisors. It's win the economy at kitchen tables. Mm. The second thing we can do is get out our vote. And we need to make... Our vote is not debating whether to vote for Joe Biden or somebody else. Our vote, our folks drop off more and off year elections. Uh, we had some turnout issues, especially because of COVID, and getting out our vote is going to be absolutely critical. And then the third thing I think is um, that to let Donald Trump be Donald Trump as much as he can be, particularly to suburban women and suburban moms. We are back to the days of the waitress and the soccer moms being the determinant vote. And the 2020, I'll make a prediction right now, It'll mm. women, it will be women who will decide the 2022 election. Do they vote for Biden and right. the Democrats more than the Repu men vote for the Republicans? And let Donald Trump be Donald Trump as much as he can be. I was kind of right. sorry he didn't coverage because right. that's the stuff rejected and they'll reject it again. Well, folks, unfortunately, we're out of time. This is really terrific. I'd love to get a one word. If you have a one word answer, Dan, on what matters most in the election, you've got you've got a right. chance. I'm a professor. One word, it's impossible. I'll say suburbs. <laughs> suburbs, there you go. Well, listen, it's a great conversation. Thank you both. Democratic strategist, Linda Lake, political science professor, Dan Hopkins. Thank you both for being with us today. Really appreciate it. And we'll see what happens. So what's the bottom line? Millions and millions of Americans still believe that Donald Trump is their great white hope. For them, he's a straight talker who doesn't abide by the rules, doesn't care about traditional lines between conservative and liberal or Democrat and Republican, and he does whatever he likes. They love that Trump is rude and obnoxious, and he could care less about your feelings. Maybe that's really what Trumpism is about for so many people. They're frustrated, and they vent their anger through him. As for his pugnacious policies, well, they're just collateral damage for the nerds to worry about. We have to deal with it. The scariest thing about his strategy is that it might just work again. My guests think that Democrats are scrambling to appeal to a majority of Americans, but are they succeeding? It's really hard to tell. The cold reality is that in about three years, Donald Trump or a Trump-like clone could be back in the White House. In American politics, never say never. And that's the bottom line.